0: begin. We are now on the fourth lesson. Uh, We are not having any Sunday school next week. I think we need to communicate that to the the children's teachers. Uh, Right now there's only kids in one of the three classes though, and it might be even worse next week. I'm not I'm not doing anything next week. Uh, Chris Barnard will be preaching morning and evening and we're just instead of trying to find a sub we're just not having Sunday school. And uh, when we resume next, uh, the following week, uh, we'll be back in the fellowship hall. So now the question of how we're going to be doing recordings, I was just saying we are not having Sunday school next week. Uh, but we will resume the week after that in the fellowship hall. So that's the plan. Uh, we're on lesson four. Last time we were looking at. Well, the question, in essence, if Calvin were alive today, this is a question that Daryl asks, and we're covering Mother Kirk. If if um, Calvin were alive today and he saw a Presbyterian on the front of the church, what would he expect to find? And what would um, he would be frustrated either to find or not to find? We looked at uh, Calvin's liturgy uh, and the parts of worship. And we finished by looking at those uh those Presbyterian practices which you have on the handout. I have more of those. Uh does anyone need uh does everyone still have their outline from last week, or do we need to pass out more? You need one? That's fine. Does anyone else? Okay. So it looks like we just need two. Uh, so I'm going to be working off that for at least the next two studies. Uh so, but that's more, uh, the, 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 or the second and the third part, uh, will, will come out more in the weeks to come. We're still working on, uh, the Presbyterian practices from Daryl Hart. Daryl argues that liturgy enough isn't, uh, enough to have a Presbyterian worship service. In fact, one of the things I'm going to argue is that the churches with the best, uh, liturgy typically are the mainline churches right now, and yet we would hardly call them Presbyterian. Because, I mean, in in Calvin's sense, because you need more than the outward form. This is something I'm going to talk about. You need to uh, not only have the the actual practices uh, in place, but you need to have a theology of those things that is reflected in the worship service and in the life of the church. Remember that we are arguing for uh, a fourth form of the the reformed uh, way of life, there was the doctrinal. And and remember, I, I, uh, the, the the example of the doctrinalist isn't just Machen. I think the better one is A.W. Pink, who was a great theologian who didn't go to church. He was so discouraged about the local church, he didn't go. Um, so he spent most of his life as a hermit, uh, reading and writing. Then there is the worldview approach. You find that more in the Dutch tradition. That doesn't uh, apply to us so much. So if you think of a Tim Keller and the transformationalist outlook he has, Redeeming New York for Jesus. That's kind of Tim Keller's program. It's more like New York redeeming <laughs> the church for the world. I mean, that's my, my cynical take on that. Uh, you see a co- very compromised church in those situations. Uh, the third view, so I'm not as friendly, that third view is the pietist or the experimental, but the fourth is the liturgist and, and Hart is arguing that's the more reformed outlook coming out of the Reformation. Uh, the emphasis On the local church, her gathering, her worship, as the center of the Christian life. Okay, You contrast to the modern evangelical, who is very much a pietist. He can go to church or not. uh, uh, He can take it or leave it. It's it's not the centerpiece of his religion. Uh, Whereas for the Reformed liturgists, uh, he is like the sons of Korah who said... uh, Basically, in Psalm 84, I would rather die than be outside the courts of the Lord. I must be in church. Uh, And and I can tell you that from the six uh, weeks that we were closed as a church, it was a period of profound misery for me as a Christian. And I did actually feel that if it it lasted much longer, that I would die spiritually. Uh, So that's the outlook of the Reformed liturgy. Certainly, that's the outlook I'm coming from. Um, And so... Our, our theology is expressed in worship, primarily, and in the kind of church we have and we are. Uh, the Presbyterian flavor—that's what I keep calling it. You go into a Lutheran church, there's a Lutheran flavor; an Anglican, there's an Anglican flavor. There, there needs to be a Presbyterian flavor, and increasingly, there isn't. <laughs> Again, I, I've been in too many churches when I'm traveling that could have been charismatic, it could have been Low Church Baptist, it could have been, it could have been Anglican. Uh, but but there really ought to be a greater uniformity of outlook in terms of not only theology, but theological practice. So those practices we've seen, there was a list of six. Uh, there was uh, we, we went through the first two, which was the presence of forms, uh, set forms in the worship and then uh, the Lord's Supper. And it was out of that conviction that we went to weekly communion, which is something Calvin wanted, but uh, he actually never got Remember, we're talking about the presence of ritual, so it has a more high church flavor. But but unlike the High Church, which we would say is reformed, have man made rituals that have no warrant in Scripture, or maybe they it even has a little bit of the the flavor of the old covenant, which uh if you read our confession, I, I'm in agreement that the complicated form of liturgy has been replaced in the new covenant with a, a simpler, more spiritual liturgy. Which, which means a form of worship. Uh, it's, it's not ritual that we reject, it's man-made ritual. What we are interested in are the good rituals. What, uh, what, what Daryl Hart calls the good rituals. So Presbyterianism is not a commitment, uh, to the low church ideal of no ritual or no, nothing sacred. But rather seeing that as sacred which has the warrant in God's Word and only that. So the good rituals are word and sacrament. That, in many ways, was the emphasis of the Reformation. So there should be a heavy emphasis on the reading and the preaching of the word. And there should also be a heavy emphasis uh, upon the sacraments and worship. Very often, that is what's missing in Presbyterian worship. You have worship services without any liturgy, uh, excuse me, without any sacraments. The majority of Presbyterian worship services today do not have sacraments an occasional baptism, an occasional observance of the Lord's Supper. Is that ideal? Uh, A high church Presbyterian would say, no, we want to have the Lord's Supper. We want the element of the ritual to be present, not in uh, the Anglican or the Lutheran or the Roman Catholic sense, but in the Presbyterian sense. Calvin's view of the real presence, spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper, which means that he really is present and that there is a real sacred transaction going on. Uh, and that it's something that ought to be guarded. Uh, there was that story. I, I think you told it of Calvin guarding the elements when the men came in the church. Did you tell that story, or am I remembering that from? Okay, there's a there's a famous story of that. Um, but that I heard that story somewhere else. I, I don't remember now where that was. Okay, the third element, no, uh, or a third Presbyterian practice. Now we're, we're we're continuing to work through the list. Now is preaching. Now in a later class. I am going to take uh, praying and the Lord's Day and preaching and look at those three things and ask how ought they to be done in a Presbyterian way. Uh, So that's, again, something that you notice when you come into a Presbyterian church. It's not only the emphasis on the sermon in contrast to the high church tradition, which has its own view of preaching. It's a homily and it's it's very much secondary to the whole worship service it plays a minimal part in the liturgy that would be the high church tradition in the low church tradition you do have preaching but it has a very casual style to it it's it's lay preaching very often and uh it it the, the form of the sermon uh comes through in a much more casual way it's a lower view of preaching it's it's a, just it's a conversation between a man and the people uh that's more the low church view of preaching but the question is, us understanding the centrality of the sermon uh, in a Reformed worship service, the question is, how does the preaching in the worship express our theology? How is our view of, of uh, our, the- our theological outlook reflected in our view of the preaching, both what we expect from the pulpit and uh, what we are experiencing in worship? In other words, uh, the question is, how does this is a very provocative way of putting it, but Daryl is known for this. It's why it's such an enjoyable read. Uh, he doesn't write safely. He writes much more like the reformers. He takes chances. He says things that are intentionally, potentially provocative, even even offensive. How does the preaching take on the form of a ritual, something which is sacred, uh, something which is holy? Now again, we're going to look at this carefully in, in a future lesson. Probably two lessons from now, and a couple other examples. Uh, how how are everything we've been saying ought to be reflected in the sermon, and the, the whole event of the sermon, which includes the listening. Uh, but but the idea which is expressed in our form of uh, not our form of government, our directory of worship, and Daryl says this too that in uh, in the Presbyterian Church. There is a view of preaching that is a holy conversation. That God is speaking to the people and the people are hearing his voice. And so there is a tremendous amount of reverence, uh, and, and again, sacredness that is attached to the sermon. It's not, uh, it's not just a casual conversation. I noticed the modern preacher, uh, I've said this many times, but they often they open the sermon with, I just want to talk to you about today as though, you know, I'm just I'm just I'm almost sorry that I'm standing here. Let me detain you for 20 minutes and share with you a couple things. Maybe it will help you. That is not the view of preaching that you find in the reformers, nor is the every member view of ministry that's prevalent today. Uh, the view of the reformers as well, where they said all that we're doing in the ministry of the word is equipping you for ministry. That is not their view of preaching. Their view of preaching is that preaching is the main event. It, it it much like praying is. People think, well, I'm praying so that I can live the Christian life. No, that's wrong. You're living out the Christian life in your prayers. You're living out your Christian life in the way that you hear the word of God. The whole issue of apostasy in Hebrews is staked upon one single issue. Can anyone remind me of what that is? Using Israel as the example. Psalm 95, can anyone remember? Be careful when you hear the word that you don't harden your hearts in unbelief. They heard the word of God, but they harden their hearts in unbelief. The central event in the Christian life is the hearing of the word of God. Paul says that we come to salvation... By professing faith in Jesus, Romans chapter 10. But how does faith come about? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the word of God. And how are we to hear unless preachers are sent? And so if faith stands at the center of the Christian life, how does faith come about? Faith comes about by hearing the word of God. This this is absolutely central uh, to our view of the Christian life, you see, not just worship. We're not just contending for preaching's place in the worship service. We are contending for it in uh, the Christian life. We are saying that I cannot live the Christian life without words. God's word being preached to me. That's God's divine economy. He's always operated that way. He sent the prophets to Israel. He sent uh, the apostles throughout the world. And then he established churches and ordained ministers to bring the word closely connected to that. There's a lot that I could say about that, but I'll again, I'll save that for another lesson. The other thing that you see, by the way, is the longish expository sermon. That's another thing that you find in reformed churches, not just a homily where the minister is chatting with the people. But you have you have God's word being opened and expounded as Ezra did. And and it tends to be longish compared to other traditions. And there are good reasons for that. I don't want to camp out on each of these points. I'm actually beginning to become embarrassed at how little progress I'm making. So I'm going to try to, try, even though I have lots to say on these points, I, I'm going to try to move through more points. But I will take preaching and I will take the Sabbath and I will likely take prayers and look at those three. And ask, how would those be done in a Presbyterian way? And really fill out those three points. But we're going to look at each of those in a smaller way today. From that view of the preaching and of the sacraments, these are things that the elders ordinarily are not doing. Uh, In fact, according to our form of government, an elder uh, cannot uh, give the sacraments. Uh, Only a minister can. And it's debatable whether an elder can preach. Some people would say the elders are exhorting. I, I, I get less ruffled over that point. Um, I think that a lay person can preach. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not in agreement with with uh, that view. Um, and I'm not even sure it's articulated in our book. It, it it may be. I I think I've I've heard that said more than I've I've heard it expressed by other ministers more than I've read it. Uh, but but if we if we see the minister. As the one who is bringing the word of God to us and as the one who is. This is awkward (laughs) to be the one making this point because it seems as though I'm contending for myself and I'm not. I'm contending for Presbyterian theology and Daryl Hart is an elder. So I'm I'm merely sharing his point of view and he is the one bringing the sacraments. He is the one leading us in worship. Then it would lead at the same time to a high view of. Holy office. Again, that sounds very high church, doesn't it? It almost sounds Roman Catholic. Uh, but but the minister is someone who is set apart. And so the fourth thing that you see is office and ordination. And, and he's particularly speaking about the office of the minister. The minister in Presbyterian, uh, the Presbyterian ministers have always been the, the, the best trained ministers. Always. That has always been true. And it's because you see, it's not just because we're so intellectual It reflects another theological point, and that is, I've already said it, but let me just see if you're listening. Why do we train our ministers so carefully? And even to our own detriment, by the way, when the the church was expanding into the frontier, the Baptists and the Methodists were killing it. We couldn't train men fast enough, (laughs) but they just sent out lay preachers. We said, no, that's not okay. We, We refuse to do that. We've never really had a place for lay preaching in Presbyterian theology. Why is that? Right, it's definitely that. It's it's a high. It's a it's it's a view of again uniformity. <laughs> if you send out a bunch of lay preachers, who knows what you're going to get or what you're going to lose? And a lot of things were lost as a result of that. The frontier became known as the land beyond the Sabbath. So at the very least, they lost that. But it reflects a high view of the ministry. We see if the minister is going to be handling sacred things that are at the center of the Christian life. It's essential that he not only be trained carefully, but that he be carefully uh, uh, is the word vetted <laughs> where the presbytery looks at him carefully and says, we want to make sure you you possess the call of God is vetted. The word for that. Uh, OK, uh, so. So whereas on the other hand, uh, well, and oh, no, let me say one more thing on in the life of the church. Uh, the, the minister enjoys a, a, a place of prominence that, that this is where, you know, it's 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 almost awkward pleading for this myself, but I, I'm, I'm just describing a Presbyterian theology. He holds a prominent place in the church because everybody recognizes the sacredness of his office and that the hands were not laid on him hastily. But he is taking the mantle of the apostles and preaching the same message they preach. And uh, distributing the same sacraments, they distribute it. Uh, so high view of office, high view of ordination. We don't have a place for lay preaching. We have ordained and trained men. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, if you look at the low church side, not only do you have lay preaching, very commonly, or men who aren't trained, or men who are easily ordained, uh, maybe not by a presbytery, in fact, Certainly not. I, I'm not even sure what the ordaining body would be in a low church tradition. Um, you know, I remember my friend in high school was ordained on the Internet. So he used to joke, you know, I'm an ordained minister. And I actually think he was serious. I, I never obviously took it seriously. But, you know, that's actually possible. Uh, and some men simply declare that, you know, they're, they're ordained by the call of God. In fact, I think that was Spurgeon's view, which it's not Presbyterian. And Spurgeon wasn't a Presbyterian. Um But there's another way that this view uh has has not only been articulated, but it's seeped into the Presbyterian church even with its more low church uh, tendencies in the 20th century, and that is what is called anti-clericalism. Instead of having a high view of the minister as the man of God who possesses the anointing, the training, the office, and so on, he's viewed in reality with contempt. And, and, and in some sense, this is fair, <laughs> because... The ministers today are a sorry bunch of men. They're not, They're not capable men. They're men who couldn't make it in life, so they became ministers. I mean, let's just be honest. I've never been more depressed than my days in seminary. So I'm going to agree with that. It's not the best men. It's the worst men and the weakest men who are in the seminaries. And just visit the churches, and you'll see that's definitely true. But if we had a higher view of office, those men would never be ministers to begin with. We would demand that the best men were ministers. And that used to be the case. So anti-clericalism, the, basically holding the minister in contempt, seeing him as someone who, well, the men in the church are getting after it during the week, but not the minister. His job is easy. And so nobody really takes the minister seriously. That is a really dangerous thing uh, when it sets into the church, because who then does possess spiritual authority? Well, the truth is it's the individual in that case. And the individual becomes not only autonomous, but his own authority in all cases. Uh, So the centerpiece of the Christian life then is just me and God, as opposed to me and God transacting uh, in the worship service, through the preaching, through the sacraments and so on. So a high view of office, a high view of ordination, as opposed to anti-clericalism. Obviously, you can go too far with this, as in the case of the Roman Catholic tradition, calling the man father and things like that. Um, and, and the minister is so set apart, he can't even have a family. So you know, you, we're not going all the way there. Presbyterianism, I'm going to argue, does the best job of any tradition of maintaining the balance and avoiding the extremes. But uh, as Daryl says, let me see if I can find it. He says, if preaching really is the word of God and if the sacraments really communicate benefits of redemption then the people who perform such acts are clearly different from other believers and should be set apart or ordained to perform such holy tasks. This is precisely the logic behind the Reformed understanding of ordination, a concept that adds yet one more piece of the mosaic of high church Presbyterianism. Let's see if I want to keep reading. The vocation of ministers is holy or sacred calling. uh Let's see, I could read more, but I'll stop there. Let me let me change uh, to you. The fifth practice is church membership. In other words, the question becomes, how does our view of the church, if we are liturgists, if we see the church as central to our life as Christians, how does our view of the church shape our view of what it means to be part of it? Are we part of the church? Uh, the, the ministers uh, and and the elders uh we're entrusted with the keys of the kingdom and our confession says and this comes straight out of Calvin again a high view of the church not a low view that outside of the church there is ordinarily now notice the word ordinarily you don't find that word in Calvin by the way so the confession was slightly more careful but the confession says ordinarily there's no possibility of salvation in other words if you're a Christian you belong to the church Uh, You've been brought in. You've professed faith. You've been brought into membership. Uh, So at the same time, you could be cast out of the church, couldn't you? Uh, And and through the presence of church discipline, a high view of the church involves the presence of church discipline, whereas in a more low church setting, uh, you will not find church discipline and that's more common in Presbyterian churches today that again that's a low church sentiment but if you have the high view then you're going to have a view a high view of what membership involves you want professing Christians and then those whose profession has been proved to be invalid through or inconsistent through um, uh, extreme and persistent moral failings are to be cast out of the church So the idea of the keys of the kingdom, the sixth point that you would find in a Presbyterian church, ideally, is the presence of the regulative principle of worship. This is what I think gives Presbyterianism its distinctive flavor more than anything else. It's what describes our style of worship, that we, again, are interested more than any other tradition in in having Scripture regulate our worship. Uh, So... There are other views of this. The Roman Catholic Church would say. Scripture has a say, but so does church tradition. So if the church invented Christmas, that's fine from a Roman Catholic viewpoint. The church has as much authority as the scriptures. Um, Another way of putting it is the Anglican view. It's called the normative principle. They would say if it is not forbidden, it is permitted. And so you would have many things in a worship service that were not prescribed by scripture. But as long as they weren't forbidden, they're allowed. But the Presbyterians have always been the most careful. And, and again, it explains why our worship looks the way it does, because we believe that in order for it to be done, it has to have the express warrant of scripture. So we should be singing hymns, songs and spiritual songs. Colossians three. We should be lifting up prayers We should be reading and preaching the word, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We should have the sacraments. We should have ordained men overseeing it. (laughs) All of these things have the warrant of Scripture. But but hopefully you will look in vain in a Presbyterian worship service for elements of the service that are not expressly commanded in Scripture. And if you do, then perhaps you ought to object. So the regular principle of worship is that Scripture regulates our worship and there is a carefulness in our in our worship that you may not find in other traditions. A carefulness in the sense of of, of trying to confine it to scripture. But but another way that this has been expressed, and I've, I've kind of been poking fun at this idea, but let me just elaborate it on it a little bit. Historically, if you look, uh, for instance, at the original directory of worship. Which is written alongside the confession, it, it's more restrictive than our than our directory of worship. Uh, it, it it says that that no holy day shall be observed but the Lord's Day. And so historically, if you if you look at Presbyterianism, or even anything that was reformed, if you were in Jonathan Edwards Church, for instance, in in Northampton, which was not a Presbyterian church, you would not have found them observing Easter or Christmas. You would have found them observing the Lord's Day. Now, there's a great study on this in Hughes Oliphant Old's book on the Lord's Day where he explains in the 19th century when the tide began to turn in the broader evangelical church where there was a fascination with the liturgical elements of Roman Catholicism as part of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, And that really began to bring elements of that back into uh, Reformed piety. But Reformed Christians used to be more self-conscious in their rejection of these things. But the question is, again, looking at, at the Presbyterian tradition from a high church perspective or a liturgist perspective, is the Presbyterian church capable of expressing its devotion through the use of holy days? Or are we more in line with the low church in saying that there are no holy days, except with a bit of inconsistency there, which I've pointed out many times. Uh, but, but we don't observe holy days. In, in essence, and I've even heard Presbyterians say this, that every day is now the Sabbath in the new covenant. Every day is enjoying Christ's rest. No day is different from another day. That is a very low church sentiment, whereas super duper high churches, you have an entire church calendar that the church is following together. But is the Presbyterian tradition, is rejection of that high church sentiment and low church sentiment, is it capable of expressing its devotion to the use of holy Days? And the answer is yes. And it's always been yes. Definitely. What the reform, let me say again, we're rejecting about the church calendar historically was not the idea of a church calendar. But the way it was done, it was made up. It was made up. You will not find the earliest Christians observing Easter or Christmas. You can, you can study history and find out, well, Christmas was a, was a early medieval invention or a late early church, depending on where you, uh, you know, have the break off. But it was a fourth century, it was a fourth century development. You won't find in the New Testament, you won't find the earliest Christians doing it. Remember, from our study of the Reformation, what they were doing was they were going back to the purity of the early church and taking their guidance from scripture and the church fathers. That's what the reformers were doing. But they certainly had their holy days. They had. Days which were set apart for sacred use. Days of feasting. Days of resting. Days of worship. Days in which it would be inappropriate. To engage in the labors of the other days. Which filled their calendars. And that, that has been uh, historically the Lord's day. In other words. Our church calendar has, and I'm not being silly when I say this, it is 52 holy days, uh, days of of of, um, of sacred use. Uh, there's there's quite a bit I could say here, and again, I'll, I can save this for another class, but. Hughes all of old chapter three on the Lord's Day. Again, this is just phenomenal. I've taught this before, so I'm not going to go through it again. But he says, "Concern this is how he begins. Concern for the observance of the Lord's Day has always been a strong feature of Reformed worship. If, if you were to look at our directory of worship, it describes what public worship is. It's a meeting between uh, the triune God and the people. It is not simply a Bible study or me uh uh, me worshiping God in the woods, but it is, um, it says, while believers are to worship in secret as individuals and in private as families, they're also to worship as churches in assemblies of public worship, which are not carefully or willfully to be neglected or forsaken. Public worship occurs when God, by His Word and Spirit, through the lawful government of the church, causes people to assemble and worship Him together. And when is that to happen? The, the, the Directory of Worship says that is to happen on the Sabbath day. Now, each weekly cycle begins with the people of God resting in Christ in the worship of his name, followed by six days of work. On the next page, it says the whole the Lord's day is a holy convocation. The day on which the Lord calls his people to assemble for public worship, although it is fitting and proper that the members of Christ Church assemble for worship on other occasions. Also, which are left to to the discretion of particular sessions, the Lord calls the whole congregation of each local church to the sacred duty and high privilege of assembling for public worship each Lord's Day. Uh, and it, it says beyond that, it's highly advisable that it be done morning and evening. Uh, Terry Johnson has a great section on the Lord's Day. He says, uh, I, and I, I think I can save this for our further study of the Lord's Day in another class. But one thing he says is. Uh, two things, actually. The Puritans referred to the Lord's Day as the market day of the soul. Six days a week, one buys and sells for the sake of the body. Sunday, however, we are to trade in spiritual commodities for the sake of our souls. All secular affairs are to be set aside. Speaking of the modern busyness, he says we've crammed our schedules full of activity seven days a week. We've lost our Sabbath rest in the process. Again, we can look at that later. But the centrality of the Lord's Day. To a Presbyterian piety. Seeing the Lord's Day as a day of holy convocation. It's not a day of sitting in your home and resting and doing nothing and watching football or whatever. It's a day of engaging specifically in the acts of public and private worship. Which you find being said in our, in our confession. And so Darrell says. Uh, that one of the ironies of the 19th century is that in rejecting the Lord's Day. The church began to embrace the holy days. Very, it's, a, it's an interesting historical development. Again, Daryl and and um, and Hughes off old both explain that a low view of the Sabbath and a high view of Christmas and Easter. He says the reformed tradition most obviously veers from other high church traditions concerning the matter of a church calendar. This is one of the great ironies of contemporary Presbyterianism, however, for its low church sensibilities have cultivated a remarkable attachment to the light variety of the church calendar, namely the observance of Christmas and Easter. This is ironic because if today's Presbyterians who cling to their Christmas pageants and revere their Good Friday services ever had to confront the high church origins of their favorite Holy Days, they might change their minds and quickly. Uh, so he goes on to explain uh, the way that the early or excuse me, uh, the reformed, uh, the reformers viewed uh, the Holy Days. Uh, they 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 got rid of them and they replaced them with. Uh, with the Lord's Day, a high view of the Lord's Day. High church Presbyterianism does not reject the church calendar, he says, as much as it offers an alternative. I like that that way of putting it very much. One that revolves around the weekend and week-out observances of the Sabbath. Reformed Protestants then have 52 holy days a year. Again, a high view of the local church and a high view of the Sabbath. All of these ideas are coming together and coalescing on the Lord's day. As we gather for worship. When we express our piety. And our devotion. And our theology. I have ten minutes. These are the things that ideally. These six practices. Done in these six ways. That you would ideally expect to find. Every time you come into a Presbyterian worship service. You would expect to find. A high view of the Sabbath. Ideally through morning and evening worship. high view of of office and preaching and of the Lord's Supper and so on. But turning to something else, and, uh, and we're not going to have time to finish this, but I had planned for this idea to bleed into the next two lessons anyways. And so we'll just finish wherever we do. And perhaps we can find a way to keep recording these. There is a little handheld recorder that maybe I can use and then we can upload it. But there is a balance here that men like Terry Johnson uh, and Mar Lloyd-Jones advocated for in their worship. I, I don't see, on this point, Daryl being very balanced. He, he But that's, that's the way Daryl is, if you know him and if you've read him. He's, he's advocating strongly for a point. And he's not offering counterpoints or qualifications. He's saying, this is what needs to happen. But it is, of course, possible if we push too far in the high church direction that we will end up unwittingly, in places we do not want to go, and we will lose our Presbyterian convictions in the process. And perhaps it's this hesitancy that has led to so much of the, high, or the low church sentiments that are present today. Uh, many Presbyterians either come out of a higher church setting or they look at those high, church, high churches and, and with horror, and they want to distance themselves as far as possible. So we're looking for balance, though. That's what I'm arguing for. We want to be high church without going too far. We want to have the presence of forms without devolving into formalism, which is the most common critique of the high church worship. And and from this, uh, just to, to direct your attention, we arrive at the Presbyterian qualities, uh, which is under the Presbyterian practices. I'll set that aside, but the balance uh, in the forms is is how I arrived at the qualities. And if those qualities are present, then the forms will not devolve into formalism. I'll save that for later. What Terry Johnson advocates for is the presence, he says, of fixed forms but kept to a minimum. So that isn't the language that you find in Daryl Hart, but, but you do find a somewhat more balanced view in Terry Johnson, uh, his book, Leading in Worship. He says, the temptation to move the church in a more liturgical direction is strong, especially as an antidote to today's trivialities. We urge that this temptation be resisted. As it moves beyond the use of the Lord's Prayer, Creed, Ten Commandments, and Confession of Sin for the following reasons. And then he offers some reasons. Uh, he says, uh, as, as the forms increase, it, it crowds out freedom. This is a point I'm going to come to in a minute. Uh, the second uh, is less important. But the third, he says, that uh, the higher the church goes on this spectrum, the more the church and the congregation, he says, becomes spectators as priests performed the mass in the Middle Ages, as the service became higher, employing more fixed, responsive forms, congregational participation diminished. Uh, so, he is saying that we need to have the, we need to have Presbyterian forms, but kept to a minimum. We can't run away with this. And 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 from this, uh, it yields. A matrix of Presbyterian worship is consisting of three elements. It's very similar to my list of qualities, and I, I, that, when I came up with that list, I used this partly as the basis of it. He talks of the need for form and freedom. That's the balance, by the way. You want to have the forms, but you, want, you also want to have the freedoms. And as we, as we work out this idea of more and more, That's how I would describe the difference between high and low church. High church is a maximum of forms, a minimum of freedom. Low church is a maximum of freedom, a minimum of forms. But Presbyterianism, and really only Presbyterianism, in my opinion, is capable of having the perfect balance of both form and freedom. And so he says we must strike a balance between form and freedom. He says, at times, anti-liturgical spirit has dominated Presbyterianism, and that would certainly be the the case today. He actually has a nice little history. He says, on the one hand, the Reformed tradition cautions us against over-reliance upon liturgy. So it, it urges against excessive high churchmanship. On the other hand, he says, a modest number of fixed forms, and you notice how he puts it, a modest number, serve as a hedge against the deterioration of worship in eras of spiritual decline or when the gifts of the ministers are not up to the occasion. The right balance, it would seem, would be an orderly approach that employs biblically-based historical liturgical forms while leaving room for free prayers and the work of the spirit. Uh, And thus, he argues, uh, turning to another page now, that worship like this, will be simple, spiritual, and substantial. Simple because the New Testament does not prescribe a complex ritual of service as found in the Old Testament. Remember I said that earlier, and you'll find that language in the Confession. Overly ornate liturgies resemble the Old Covenant, not the simplicity of the New Covenant. Spiritual because when Jesus removed the special status of Jerusalem as the place where God was to be worshipped. Uh, he uh, And substantial because... The God of the Bible is a great God and cannot be worshipped appropriately with forms that are light, flippant, or superficial. And so that's my main contention that I want to try to develop, that we ought to maintain the tension and the balance and never allow one to dominate. In contending for Presbyterian forms where they've become absent, Uh it ought not to be the point ought not to be overstated. We are still understanding there needs to be room for both. And and Presbyterianism at its best is able to do this, to have form and freedom. And uh let's see. I I I can I can finish. Uh hmm, I actually have two points I want to make and I can't make them both. All right, I'm going to make this one. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says form and spirit instead of form and freedom. But it's the same point. And maybe I'll use this as the, the, the starting point in two weeks. He says uh, Dean Inge had a, a book on Protestantism that began with these words. Every institution tends to produce its opposite. He says that Protestantism has become this is. Lloyd-Jones commenting on that point, almost the exact opposite of what it was at its beginning in the 16th century. Why does such a thing happen? It occurs as a result of the struggle between spirit and form. I do not think that there is a greater struggle than this. The spirit must have a form, and that is why you have such a thing as the Christian church. An idea must always take a form in order for it to have any value. But there's always tension between these two. Certain dangers arise, and the biggest danger of all is that the form tends to cripple the spirit. That's the criticism of the high church. The form cripples the spirit. What happens is that you must have form. There must be a minimum of organization. Otherwise, you cannot do anything. You cannot. You you can be a vague dreamer, but you will not help anyone. Every idea has got to take form in some sense or other. But the moment you give it a form... And you have an organization. You have to encounter the problem of how to prevent the organization from throttling the spirit. That is the trouble. Now, this is the thing that is so clear. He says the whole story of the children of Israel illustrates this uh, institutionalizing this organization, which ultimately destroys the spirit altogether. This is the subtle process is a very subtle process, and it is sometimes a very slow one. It is almost imperceptible, and that is why the tragedy takes place so often in the history of the church. People only wake up to the fact that it has happened when it is too late to do anything about it. Well, I'll use that as a launching point uh, in two weeks to the next class. The, the form and the uh, and the spirit, in other words, the, the the spirit of the form. Why are we even doing these things? And the reality, Lloyd Jones is saying, is that. An excessive adherence to the form inevitably leads to a loss of the spirit, even even as you adhere to the forms and and, and thus the, the institution produces its opposite. And the question is, how do you avoid that happening in recovering the forms? How do you maintain the spirit? This is something I want to explore. I also want to look at examples of of how that has happened when you adhere to the form and lose the spirit or perhaps you try to adhere to the form, the spirit, but ignore the forms. Both of those are characteristic of modern Protestantism. But the balance is when you have both. Uh, so, so those two men, Terry Johnson and, uh, and Martin Lloyd Jones are advocating for that uh, somewhat differently than Daryl. And so I'm, I'm bringing a bit of balance to the discussion. Uh, and again, contending for the, the, the point that Presbyterianism is is better able to do that than any other form of, of, of church and worship and government. And that ought to be our goal. Uh, and there ought to be room for both form and freedom. Uh, so we will, we will keep working on that idea, form and freedom, for probably two more classes. And, uh, and then we'll see where we go from there. We need to stop and pray and prepare for worship. Father, we are thankful for uh, the teaching uh, of these men, which have helped me and, and hopefully are helping others. We ask you... To, to further equip this church to see its true mission and, and then to execute its true mission. None of it is easy. Uh, there are always dangers on every side that confront us. But we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to look after your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.